My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 36, The Insurrection of 10 August, 1792. First things first, Happy New Year. I hope you've all had a great start to the new year, and if not, well, I hope that rectifies itself as soon as possible. Additionally, a huge thank you to every one of you for your patience and support over the last six months. It's been a rough time, but I'm pleased to announce that I think I'm 100% better. Fingers crossed. Now, since the last episode was quite some time ago, I'm keen to get stuck into it. The only thing I would tease is that there is a major announcement coming down the pipeline. I think you'll like it, and I'll be making it sometime in February. Before we jump into the show, however, I would like to thank everyone who has been writing into the podcast, telling their friends and family, writing reviews, and promoting the show on social media. This really does help, so thank you so much for your support. Speaking of support, there are a lot of new Patreons to thank. A big thank you and welcome to the new Virtuous Citizens, Andrew, Jared, Adam, William, Michael, Elmer, Michael C, Jack, Wesley and Omund. Another big thank you and welcome to the new True Revolutionaries, Laura, Julia, Michael Z, Eleanor, Elliot and Kevin. A special call out to the magnificent champions of the people, Geoffrey, Cynthia, George and Alung, for their ongoing support as well, as well as Brady, who has joined them as a champion of the people. Furthermore, an extra special call out to the hero of the revolution, Brian, for their extraordinary sponsorship of the show. Finally, a big thank you to Jeremy, John, Javier, Peter and Terry for increasing their pledge. Thank you so much to all the Patreons of Grey History for your continuing support of the show. A reminder that if you're a fan of Grey History, and if you'd like more Grey History, then please do tell people about the show and please support the podcast on Patreon. I have big plans for 2022, plans that I think you will love, but I do need your help to produce Grey History on a far more regular basis. If you enjoy listening to Grey History, remember that you can support the show for as little as $2 an episode. That's only half a cup of coffee. Your small contribution actually makes a huge difference and there's a whole bunch of exclusive content just for Patreon supporters of the show. A reminder that if you're a fan of Grey History, and if you'd like more Grey History, then please do tell people about the show, and please support the podcast on Patreon. I have big plans for 2022. Plans that I think you will love. But I do need your help to produce Grey History on a far more regular basis. If you enjoy listening to Grey History, Remember that you can support the show for as little as $2 an episode. Your small contribution actually makes a huge difference, and there's a whole bunch of exclusive content just for Patreon sponsors of the show. That includes four bonus episodes, a huge amount of additional content for the regular episodes, and behind-the-scenes videos explaining the upcoming content. As I said earlier, there will be a big announcement in the next few weeks. It will be a daring adventure but I need your help, and supporting the show on Patreon would be immensely helpful. 
Anyway, that's enough from me. It's good to be back. Thank you again for your patience and your support. And please enjoy episode 36, The Insurrection of 10 August 1792. Welcome to Grey History. The insurrection of 10 August 1792. If you want something done right, do it yourself. It's a well-known expression and one that I find myself using a little too frequently in the workplace. Coincidentally, for a podcast focused on 18th century French history, the person often attributed with coining that expression was himself a contemporary of the French Revolution. Although the direct translation differs, the expression, if you want something done right, do it yourself, is often attributed to the 19th French playwright Charles Guillaume Entienne. A young teenager during the events we've been discussing, Entienne moved to Paris in 1793. He missed by just a few months, witnessing a perfect example of his advice being put into practice. The summer of 1792 was a dark time for the French Revolution. The war was going terribly. Inflation and food shortages were causing severe hardship. Renegade priests were resisting the reforms of the assembly and counter-revolutionaries schemed to undo the progress of the last three years. With its leaders consumed by an environment of factional conspiracy and with foreign armies massing on the eastern frontier, to state that the revolution was in crisis would be an understatement. To address this existential threat, By August 1792, the radical cohorts of Paris had concluded that something had to be done. A broad coalition was formed seeking to save the revolution from the terrors of European despotism. The revolutionary clubs and societies of Paris worked with the city's sections and the newly established Central Committee of the Federes to push a truly radical agenda. With the sections forming a central correspondence committee in the town hall, and the sectional assemblies now sitting in permanent session, the various official and non-official organisations of the revolutionary left prepared to make their move. To these revolutionaries, it was not enough to summon more volunteers from the provinces or to dismantle the unjust distinctions between active and passive citizens. No. In order to save the revolution from the forces of reaction, in order to defend the French people from the shackles of tyranny, France would have to embark on a second revolution. Initially, the radicals of the city's clubs, sections and federé battalions looked to the Legislative Assembly for action. With the news of the outrageous Brunswick Manifesto potentially energising Paris in early August, and with invasion from the east becoming imminent, 
the city's sections hoped to force the Legislative Assembly's hand. As discussed in the last episode, on the 3rd of August 1792, 40 of 48 sections petitioned the Legislative Assembly to adopt drastic measures. The petitioners demanded not only King Louis's dethronement, but the establishment of a French Republic in all but name. Led by the Parisian mayor, Jerome Petion, they were careful not to utter the word republic, but they did explicitly reject any member of the current dynasty as a candidate for the throne. Instead, the petitioners insisted that the executive branch be replaced by a council of ministers nominated by the assembly. With the treason of the court evident in the eyes of the city's revolutionaries, nothing short of overthrowing and replacing the monarchy in its entirety could secure the nation's safety. That is what the radicals demanded, and that is what they believed the moment required. Yet, there was just one small problem for the radicals of Paris. The Legislative Assembly, the elected body representing not just some Parisian neighbourhoods, but the entire French nation, didn't seem particularly keen to comply with the demands of the capital. In fact, members of the Legislative Assembly were openly working against them. When the Montconseil section had declared in late July that it no longer recognised Louis XVI as the King of the French, it was prominent deputies of the Assembly who worked to reverse the section's decree. Among them was the Girondin deputy Venu, who, despite his Republican credentials, denounced the decree as unconstitutional and warned of anarchy and civil disorder if the sections continued to ignore the constitutional authority of the Assembly. Indeed, in the eyes of some deputies, the sections had overstepped the mark. It was not their place to meddle in, let alone dictate, national and constitutional matters. Worryingly for the revolutionary left, it was not just conservative-leaning beyond deputies who hampered their moves, but also unaligned deputies, as well as comparatively progressive Girondins. In the face of such opposition from the Assembly, including from some Jacobin Girondin deputies, who had long attacked the crown and championed republican reform, how was a second revolution going to be achieved? How was the nation going to be saved? How would France be protected from the terrible tyranny of foreign kings? These were the questions that needed an immediate answer. It's here that the sections of Paris began to adopt a yet-to-be-created expression. If you want something done right, do it yourself. In the last episode, we witnessed the Quansvar section declare a deadline. On the 4th of August, 1792, the section set a deadline of 11pm on the night of the 9th of August. If the Assembly had not granted the people their rights and justice, that is to say, if the assembly had not deposed the king within five days, then at midnight, insurrection would be proclaimed. Another section pointedly declared that if the assembly refused to act, 
the sections would act on its behalf. As a group of federés had put it to the assembly on the 3rd of August, we demand a categorical answer. Can you save us? Yes or no? If the answer was no, then the sections would save themselves. In the days that followed, the answer appeared to be that the assembly would not save the nation. A civil unrest started to manifest across Paris. The legislative assembly was in an an enviable position, seemingly stuck between two extremes. The assembly found itself standing in the middle of the road, unwilling to support a second revolution, but equally unwilling, or perhaps just unable, to prevent it as well. Put differently, it appeared that the assembly not only lacked the conviction to lead the people, but also the determination to suppress them. It's in this state of purgatory, an eyewitness to the events of August, an Englishman named John Moore wrote of how the occupants of the galleries would insult, jeer, and even threaten the members of the assembly who failed to adopt the radical demands of the city's sections. Moore concluded that the divided assembly had more than met its match. I could not but feel convinced that the people in the galleries were more ready to throw the deputies out than were the deputies to expel them. This perspective was backed up by a Parisian. Madame Julien wrote on the 8th of August, The assembly appears to me too weak to back up the will of the people, and the people appear to me too strong to allow itself to be overmastered by them. Yet, despite the Assembly's hesitancy to act with forceful conviction, just a day before the deadline of the 9th of August arrived, the Assembly finally started to do, well, something. Unfortunately for the city's radicals, that something was very much not aligned with the demands of the revolutionary left. To back up a bit, In addition to the king's dethronement and the formation of a new national convention, one common demand of the radicals had been the dismissal of the Marquis de Lafayette. The most prominent Fillon in the country, the former deputy remained in command of French forces, and this was vehemently opposed by the left. If you recall, after the demonstration of the 20th of June, which saw a Parisian mob invade the Tuileries Palace and threaten the king, Lafayette had returned to the capital to demand that the assembly introduce repressive measures to suppress the clubs, the sections, and the free press. This opened the commander to accusations of abandoning his troops without authorised leave, and his actions made him hated amongst the Jacobins, both Montagnard and Girondin. Originally, the Assembly refused to act on Lafayette's demands, but it also voted against a motion to strip him of his command. However, since late June, the city's radicals, including petitioners representing the provinces from the Federé volunteers, continued to demand Lafayette's impeachment, 
In their eyes, Lafayette was a traitor. A new Cromwell, a would-be dictator who would act against the people, just as he had done at the Sharp de Mars massacre a year prior. In the face of continued pressure, the matter of impeachment was once again taken up by a committee of the Assembly. On the 8th of August, the Assembly voted on whether or not to impeach the hero of two worlds. The end result was 406 against, 224 votes in favour. Now, this vote overwhelmingly defended Lafayette, but Lafayette's fate is not what's relevant here. You see, although voting on the matter of Lafayette's future, this vote was viewed as a proxy for Louis. If the legislature was unwilling to remove the general, then what do you think the chances are that they would have been willing to remove the king? That's right, approximately zero. In the eyes of the radicals of Paris, in refusing to impeach the general, the assembly had also declared its intention to refuse to dethrone the king. Despite continued pressure from the radical agitators of Paris, Lafayette would keep his army, and it seemed that Louis would keep his throne. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Worse for the radical cohorts of Paris, it appeared that this setback could just be the first. Although some moderate and conservative deputies had drifted away from the Assembly's proceedings in early August, it now appeared that a sizable portion intended to at least try to hold their ground. In the aftermath of Lafayette's acquittal, a cohort of deputies became increasingly vocal in resisting the demands of the revolutionary left. Furthermore, they began to advocate forceful measures to contain the civil unrest in Paris and prevent a second revolution. Voices grew in unison, attacking the city's sections, denouncing the clubs and demanding that the federés be moved on from the capital. One deputy made it clear that the situation was untenable and that the assembly had to act. Discussion is impossible. Without perfect liberty of opinion, I declare to my constituents 
that I cannot deliberate if the legislative body does not secure my liberty and safety. Joining these deputies were other members of the government who had not resigned themselves to defeat. The Minister of Justice, a man named Dejoli, urged the Assembly to act. Condemning the mischief of the mob, including crimes against deputies themselves, the Minister wrote to the Assembly, I have denounced these attacks in the criminal court, but law is powerless, and I am impelled by honour and probity to inform you that without the promptest assistance of the legislative body, the government can no longer be responsible. To some amongst the radical left, the sudden increase in conservative and moderate voices smelt like counter-revolution. The Fionns had already tried, after the demonstration of the 20th of June, to reverse their waning influence. Perhaps this was yet another attempt of Lafayette and his kind to smother radical and democratic ideals. In the eyes of some revolutionaries, these events confirmed their suspicion that action was required, not only against the court, but against the assembly itself. Having already called for a new national convention, members of the city's revolutionary cohorts now viewed the assembly's disbursement as equally important to the king's dethronement. With no constitutional remedy existing to rectify the situation, Insurrection, revolt, uprising was the only means to save the country. And I do mean save. The insurrectionists might have been attacking the constitutional authorities, but the revolutionaries were in many ways operating in a defensive mindset. As historian George Lefebvre notes, In the sense that the revolutionaries saw a potential danger, and resolved to meet it, the insurrection was another defensive reaction. And so, just more than three years after the fall of the Bastille, the Second Revolution commenced. Now, revolutions, in hindsight, tend to be portrayed as fairly orderly affairs. Look at the official propaganda of various revolutions through the 20th century and you'll see highly choreographed material which seems to show a spontaneous and unanimous uprising of a downtrodden people against an entrenched and corrupt elite. However, the reality is often more complex and the uprising of the 10th of August is no different. In fact, If there's two things the 10th of August was not, it's spontaneous and unanimous. Unlike the fall of the Bastille, the Second Revolution of 10 August was not an unplanned or impromptu event. We'll compare the various natures of these two key events another time. But in short, the coup of 10 August was a planned uprising. Leading up to the deadline, issued by the city's radical sections, various measures were taken by the revolutionary left to prepare for the coming struggle. Here we find various official and unofficial organisations 
working together towards their common purpose of overthrowing the constitutional authorities. In the days prior to the insurrection, members of official institutions undermined the establishment which they supposedly worked for and were actively seeking to replace. The new Central Correspondence Committee, which had established itself in the town hall, used its jurisdiction over Paris's defence to deny resources to the palace's defenders. Likewise, members of the Parisian police, including associates of Danton, handed munitions and weapons to revolutionary federés as well as other sympathetic militiamen. In fact, some historians claim Danton was directly involved in such actions, actively taking measures to undermine the defences of the crown. Outside of official institutions, the radical federé volunteers from Marseille transferred from their barracks to more critical locations near the Cordelier Club. The volunteers from Marseille had almost triggered an uprising upon their arrival to Paris in late July, and now they were conveniently located in the heart of one of the city's most radical districts, the new neighbours to the city's political clubs and societies, which had been causing the established authorities so much grief. The pieces were falling into place for a premeditated and coordinated assault, and the assailants had used the first weeks of August to prepare their advance. Yet, despite the public declaration of the insurrection's date and time, when the deadline of 11pm arrived on the 9th of August, the people of Paris hardly flooded the streets in some united torrent of rage and hope. In fact, quite the opposite. Earlier on the 9th of August, the Assembly decided to defer any decision on the King's dethronement. This action naturally enraged the sections and confirmed their suspicion that Lafayette's acquittal the day prior foreshadowed the Assembly's intentions for the monarch. Outraged by the body's inaction, the sections began to trigger their planned coup d'etat. At roughly 11pm, the section of Quinsvar, which had set the deadline for the 9th, resolved that each section should nominate three deputies to meet at the Hotel de Ville. These delegates would form an insurrectionary commune and take the necessary measures to save the country. And yes, by that I mean that these sectional representatives were empowered to lead the overthrow of the constitutional authorities of the palace, the assembly and the municipality. However, despite the timely call to arms, less than a third of Paris's 48 sections immediately nominated representatives for what would become the new insurrectionary commune. That's right, less than a third of the city's sections immediately jumped on board for a well-publicised and premeditated insurrection. Now, some historians depict the new commune as being staffed by only the most radical and militant sections, and admittedly, those who were first to jump on board did generally herald from the most revolutionary corners of the city. But, the reality is more complex. Many sectional assemblies were divided between supporters of the constitutional authorities 
and supporters of a second revolution. The former might have harboured more royalist or Fillon sympathies, while the latter would often be more sympathetic towards the Jacobins. As sectional assemblies debated their response to the call to arms, this slowed down the mobilisation of the revolt, as well as attempts to outright repudiate it. Furthermore, divisions existed within those who supported a second revolution, primarily between those who associated with Robespierre and the Montagnard Jacobins and those who supported Brousseau and the Girondin Jacobins. The former, who were associated with, say, Robespierreists, the Montagnards, the Cordeliers, these individuals generally supported insurrection as a means to achieve the promised second revolution. Among them were many revolutionary sans-culottes, many of whom had recently been admitted into the sectional assemblies. Remember, it had only been in the last couple of weeks that passive male citizens had been formally embraced and enfranchised by some of the city's more radical sections. In fact, some of those sections actually encouraged women and adolescents to get involved as well. In these sections, the admittance of sans-culottes into the sectional assemblies swung the mood overwhelmingly in favour of revolutionary insurrection. Opposing this group were those who supported the Girondins, and those more aligned with Brousseau and his allies. While sympathetic to some of the goals of the more radical Jacobins, they were not necessarily supporters of using insurrection to achieve constitutional revision. Furthermore, amongst the Girondin leadership, many were wary of the power of an unrestrained Paris, reflecting the fact that many came from the provinces. These individuals shared deep concerns about how some of the policies advocated by the city's Saint-Culottes would be implemented in practice. Ideological concerns aside, also remember that some members of the Girondin leadership were now in secret communications with the court, and the establishment of a new national convention through a successful insurrection would eliminate the Girondin influence over the current national legislature, the Legislative Assembly. Thus, the Girondins and their sympathisers were generally opposed to the idea of insurrection, or at times they can be described as reluctant supporters, who were more inclined to follow the very populace they claimed to lead. In short, the revolutionary left were divided over the issue of insurrection, and these divisions were reflected in the sectional assemblies. As a result, it took time for sectional assemblies to determine if they would send representatives to the new insurrectionary commune, as well as who those representatives should be. But with time, and some forceful encouragement to the less enthusiastic sections, eventually the numbers of the new insurrectionary commune began to swell. Historians differ in their count, but within a few hours, more than 30 of the 48 sections were collaborating in the plot sending their representatives to the town hall. Even at 30 sections, this was hardly an unanimous uprising from the city's administrative sections, but it was a capable and credible insurrection nonetheless. Historian Gaetano Salvamini records the unfolding events. Between 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, 
the first of these sectional representatives, escorted by workers armed with pikes, entered the Hotel de Ville, where they established themselves in the people's name. At three, when 19 sections were more or less formally represented, the chair was taken by Uguna, who had played so prominent a part in the June Rising. The legal municipal council, presided over by the philosopher Kuza, was meeting in another room when a group of rebels pushed their way in. All decisions of the sectional representatives were then transmitted to the municipal council, which proceeded to legalise them, amidst the shouts and threats of the crowd. In this way, Manda, commander of the National Guard, was summoned from the Tuileries. Guards were withdrawn from various posts, and the whole defence of the palace was thrown into jeopardy. By the early hours of the morning, the section's revolt was well and truly underway. Establishing a new insurrectionary commune in the town hall, the new authority forced the actual municipal government to issue orders on its behalf. The actual municipal government was, conveniently, and unsurprisingly, also located in the town hall, making it rather easy for the new insurrectionary commune to send a message to the next room and promptly have its orders stamped with the facade of legitimacy. When protests were made by the municipal government, one insurrectionist delivered a clear rebuke. When the people place themselves in a state of insurrection, they withdraw all power from other authorities and assume it themselves. Thus, it was through this process that the representatives of the city's sections systematically brought Paris under its control. As historian Salvamini recounted, the new insurrectionary commune not only issued orders to its allies to secure Paris, but took measures to disarm and demobilize those who would oppose it. Thus, the commune was using its control over the official municipality to simultaneously strengthen its own position while weakening that of the constitution's defenders. And for all the flaws of the current system, both the constitution and the monarchy did have its defenders. The Tuileries Palace was no helm's deep, but that didn't mean it was defenceless either. The sections had publicly declared their intention to revolt, and while the palace's defenders were hampered by the actions of various revolutionary individuals and organisations, they had not been prevented from mustering any defence. Leading the defence was a man named Manda, the commander of the National Guard. Under his command were approximately a thousand Swiss soldiers working for the French. Well-trained and well-disciplined, these foreign troops were viewed as dependable against the Parisian masses. Joining the Swiss were various volunteers who wished to defend the king. Amongst them were former officers of the Constitutional Guard that the Assembly had recently disbanded, as well as aristocrats and noblemen who wished to do their part to save the monarch. Armed and trained to varying degrees, the usefulness of these men is questionable, but it's notable that the institution of the monarchy could still inspire such devotion. Finally, 
the palace complex was guarded by members of the National Guard, although their commitment to the cause differed between the various units. Numbers for these units remain a little difficult to fix, but some estimate the number at roughly 3,000 men. In short, Mandar had at least 4,000 men at his disposal, although they were trained, supplied and motivated to varying degrees. Hardly the ideal defence force, but a defence force nonetheless. The new insurrectionary commune's first major challenge was what to do about this defence. The forces of the insurrectionists quickly ran into well-positioned troops under Mandar's command, and they threatened to prevent the insurrectionists from combining their forces. Thankfully, the revolutionary commune used the legitimacy of the original municipal council to enact its will, and ordered Mandar to appear at the Hotel de Ville. The commander of the National Guard, intelligent and a committed constitutionalist, was unaware that the authority of the municipality had been compromised. Obliged to obey orders, he appeared at the Hotel de Ville, hoping to secure more resources to defend the king. Instead, Mandar was greeted by an arrest, and promptly stripped of his command by the new commune. Unfortunately for Mandar, he was soon stripped of much more. Refusing to dismiss the defenders of the palace, the now former commander was meant to be transferred to prison, but was instead set upon by a mob. There, he was murdered on the steps of the town hall. Some historians believe his death to be spontaneous, an unrestrained action of an angry mob, while others lay the blame at Danton, particularly those who see him as orchestrating the day's events. Whatever the cause, the consequence is in no doubt. In the removal of Mandar, the insurrectionists had landed a major blow against their opponents. As historian John Dolberg Acton remarked, By this action of bloodshed, the defence of the palace was deprived of half its forces. The National Guards were without a commander, and, left to themselves, it was uncertain how many would fire on the people of Paris. These sentiments are echoed by others. Historian Robert Johnson notes that the National Guard could not be kept in their place without their leader, while historian Heinrich von Siebel states that the death of Mandar robbed the defence of its unity and firmness. The loss of Mandar as the commander of the National Guard crippled the effectiveness of the palace's defence. The capable, energetic and respected commander was the key ingredient for holding the defence together. In particular, Mandar was required to encourage apathetic units to hold the line. You see, while some guard units were sympathetic to the insurrectionists, others, particularly those from wealthier parts of the city, were ready to do battle in defence of the constitutional authorities. These men looked at the growing militancy of the Sanculots and their political allies and did not like what they saw. But in between these two positions were the majority of guardsmen who Mandar had assembled. These men preferred not to die for the king who had tried to flee the country, 
and without their leader, these troops lacked the compulsion to enter the fray. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. In Mandar's absence, it was left to the king himself to attempt to rally his troops, an activity that Louis was characteristically ill-suited for. Yet despite his shortcomings as an inspirational leader, and despite the battering his reputation had suffered in the previous years of the revolution, the king's initial attempts weren't a complete catastrophe. Well, at least for the first few minutes. Here is how historian Francois Mignet recounts the events, and note the disunity that existed within the National Guard that was stationed at the palace. It was this disunity, as well as apathy, that Mandar was critical encountering. And without him, well, hear for yourself. Historian Mignet writes, Division already existed between the defenders of the chateau when Louis XVI passed them in review at five o'clock in the morning. He first visited the interior posts and found them animated by the best intentions. He was accompanied by some members of his family and appeared extremely sad. I will not, he said, separate my cause from that of good citizens. We will save ourselves or perish together. He then descended into the yard accompanied by some general officers. As soon as he arrived, they beat to arms. The cry of long live the king was heard and was repeated by the National Guard. But the artillerymen and the battalion of the Croix Rouge replied by the cry long live the nation. At the same instant, new battalions, 
armed with guns and pikes, defiled before the king, and took their places upon the terrace of the Seine, crying, Long live the nation, long live Petion. The king continued the review, not, however, without feeling sadness by this omen. He was received with the strongest evidences of devotion by the battalions of the Fessantomar and the Petit Père, who occupied the terrace, extending the length of the chateau. As he crossed the garden to visit the ports of the Pont the Pike battalions pursued him with the cry of, Down with the veto! Down with the traitor! And as he returned, they quitted their position, placed themselves near the Pont Royal, and turned their cannon against the chateau. Two other battalions stationed in the courts imitated them and established themselves on the Place du Carousel in an attitude of attack. On re-entering the chateau, the king was pale and dejected, and the queen said, All is lost. This kind of review has done more harm than good. The sentiment that all was lost seemed to be shared by the king. Depressed and apathetic, the disastrous review pushed Louis towards accepting defeat. And, in keeping true with his nature, he sought to avoid bloodshed. He knew that such an approach would spell the end of his reign, but he appeared to see no other option. The Queen, however, reached a completely different conclusion to that of her husband. In the eyes of Marie Antoinette, if the monarchy was to fall, surrender was not the pathway forward. Declaring that it was better to let ourselves be nailed to the walls of the palace than to leave it, the Queen pushed for a last stand. Now, it is worth noting that perhaps Marie Antoinette's idea of a Thermopylae-like last stand isn't as fanciful as it may first appear. Remember, the death of Manda was a decisive blow against the defences of the palace, and we need to be mindful that the events of the 10th were not preordained by history. Had Manda been alive, there are some historians who believe a forceful defence could and would have been mounted. Furthermore, even after the death of the commander, some believe that a coordinated effort could have repelled what was primarily a rather disorganised assembly of assailants. This included a tactician you may have heard of, a certain Napoleon Bonaparte. Yes, that's right, a young Napoleon was an eyewitness to these events, and he held a firm view as to whether a credible defence was possible. We're going to unpack the opinions of both historians and eyewitnesses in an episode extra for this episode, but in short, a defence of the palace was not as crazy as it sounds, and it's vital that we remember that the conclusion of the 10th of August was not preordained by history. Reinforcing the fact that the coup's success was far from predetermined were the actions of the assailants themselves. Despite significant planning and coordination from the revolutionary sections, clubs and volunteers, the formation of a considerable force took quite some time through the night. Historian Heinrich von Siebel states that Santur was far from convinced of the insurrection's success. 
a leader of the mob of the demonstration of the 20th of June, Santer was appointed by the insurrectionary commune as Mandat's replacement as the commander of the National Guard. Von Siebel portrays Santer as hesitant in deploying his small force of federés, militiamen and armed civilians. And, at least in the early hours of the 10th of August, Santer's force was small. Even with the federés from the provinces, Santer's initial force numbered just a few thousand. Historian John Dolberg Acton goes further, describing Santer as faltering at the key moment. However, one person who most certainly did not falter was Danton's associate Vesterman. Vesterman is portrayed in many accounts as the man chiefly responsible for pushing the insurrectional forces into action and marching them to the gates of the palace. This role provides another link between Danton and the success of the 10th of August for those who see the events as Danton's coup. Before moving on, however, we should note two things. The hesitancy of the rebels once again reinforces the fact that there was lack of unanimous support for the insurrection across the entirety of the city of Paris, and that the outcome of this coup was not preordained. By the time the insurrectionists arrived at the palace, the sun was quickly rising over Paris. Now, approximately 8am in the morning, the attacking force positioned itself for assault. Joining the federés from the provinces were revolutionary national guardsmen, former soldiers and citizen volunteers who had taken any weapons they could get their hands on, most notably pikes. Amongst these citizens were of course a sizable portion of sun-culottes. Amongst the volunteers were shopkeepers, artisans, self-employed craftsmen. They were joined by clerks, jewellers, locksmiths, glaziers and manufacturers. This was not a mob of the unemployed and destitute. This was not a horde of ruffians, as some ultra-conservative historians like to suggest, and it was not strictly a mass of what we would call, to use modern terminology, working-class people. No doubt there were wage earners and labourers in the crowd. No doubt there would have been some unemployed citizens, given the state of the economy and inflation. But a sizable portion consisted of revolutionary sun-culottes. In fact, historian Christopher Hibbert makes the claim that less than half were wage earners. That couldn't be more different to the revolutionary actions seen in, say, the Russian Revolution of 1917, when the Tsars were toppled primarily by wage-earning factory workers. Also of note is the fact that this crowd was not exclusively male. Some female citizens took up arms and volunteered to help topple the loathed monarchy, including the famous Thouard de Mericourt. We'll be speaking about Mericourt in future episodes, but the committed revolutionary had long advocated for the right for women to bear arms, as well as form female military battalions. Opposing this crowd were the forces mustered by Mandar primarily National Guard units and the Swiss soldiers. Considering the fate of the nation was hanging in the balance of the coming struggle, it is rather curious that both forces numbered so few. Despite France being a country of more than 25 million people, the defenders of the constitutional authorities 
numbered no more than, say, 5,000. Furthermore, only once the crowd swelled to its maximum do we find a force perhaps as large as 20,000. This number is misleading, though, as the distinction between combatant and curious onlooker is hard to make, particularly given the number of armed sun culottes in the crowd. Interestingly, the October days in 1789 had seen perhaps as many as 60,000 march from Versailles, and here a mere fraction of that number stood on each side of the battlefield. The fate of the many would be decided by the success of the few. For a moment, on the morning of the 10th, it appeared that bloodshed might be avoided. Although the Queen pushed for resistance, and the King noted to himself how few had come to overthrow him, eventually the monarch listened to the advice of Roderer. Roderer was a senior member of the Department of Paris, as well as a former deputy of the National Assembly. He argued bitterly with the Queen over the course of action. While Marie Antoinette lobbied for a dramatic last stand, Roderer recommended the royals seek the safety of the Legislative Assembly. In rebuking the Queen's suggestion, Roderer exclaimed, Madame, you endanger the lives of your husband and children. Think of the responsibility which you take upon yourself. Keen to avoid bloodshed, the King agreed to seek refuge in the Assembly. As the numbers of the would-be assailants slowly increased outside the palace, the monarchs used the opportunity to make their dash before the fighting began. This is Roderer's account of the family's journey from the palace to the nearby assembly. He then walked around the circle formed by members of the court. I did not notice that he spoke to anyone in particular. I just heard him say, I am going to the National Assembly. Two files of guards arrived and we walked out of the palace through one apartment after another. When we were going through the Oeil de Boeuf, the king removed the headdress of the National Guardsman who was marching on his right, and put his own hat, which had a white feather in it, on the man's head in its place. The man looked surprised, then, after a moment's hesitation, took the hat off his head and put it under his arm. We then reached the colonnade at the bottom of the great staircase. The king asked, What is going to happen to all the people we have left behind? Sire, I replied, the demonstrators from the Faubourgs will be soon here. Our numbers are not sufficient. There is no one with the authority to resist even the crowds in the Place du Carousel. When we were under the tree opposite the cafe on the terrace of the Fillons, we walked through the leaves which had fallen in the night and had been swept up by the gardener into heaps. We sank up to our knees in them. What a lot of leaves, said the king. They have begun to fall very early this year. I particularly love that line from Louis. They have begun to fall very early this year. A touching metaphor for a young king experiencing the premature end of his reign. As the monarchs travelled to the assembly, disorder ensued. Palace servants refused to be separated from the king. 
for their own safety more than his. And thus, the shortness of the journey from the palace to the assembly did not prevent it from becoming a chaotic farce as well. At one point, a soldier picked up the young heir to the throne to ensure his safety. But in the commotion, the queen thought her son was being kidnapped and screamed as she temporarily feared the worst. Eventually, the royals made it to the comparative safety of the assembly, and that is where we'll leave King Louis for this episode. The consequential and significant events and decisions which the assembly make in response to this insurrection will be covered next episode. For now, I want to focus on the events which transpired back at the palace, because while the king was no longer present, several thousand itchy trigger fingers were. In the absence of the king, National Guard units had no reason to defend the palace. While some units deserted, others began to fraternise with the crowd, ultimately defecting to the revolutionaries and taking their cannon with them. Over time, the defences of the palace melted away. Well, most of the defences anyway. You see, the National Guard was only one component of the defence. The other was the regiment of Swiss soldiers. These troops, famed for their discipline and commitment to the cause, were just that. Disciplined and committed. Despite the king's absence, and despite being heavily outnumbered, the resolve of the Swiss remained. The Swiss hadn't received new orders, and so their duty was to defend the palace from attack. Seeking to press their numerical advantage, the insurrectionists, particularly the federés from Marseille and Brittany, began to push into the palace complex. Occupying the courtyard, Danton's friend Vesterman assembled them into battle formation. The Swiss looked on from the windows, and for a moment, it appeared that bloodshed would be successfully avoided. Vesterman spoke German, and so appealed to the Swiss to avoid unnecessary conflict. The Swiss seemed receptive, some even throwing cartridges from the windows in an apparent sign of goodwill. Yet the opportunity for peace was not seized. The officers of the Swiss had not been given new orders, and so they promptly brought their men back into line. The problem, however, was that the besiegers had interpreted these gestures of peace as just that, gestures of peace. So you can imagine their surprise when shots were fired as they attempted to enter the palace. Exactly who shot first is a matter of dispute, but as you can imagine, the popular imagination firmly blames the Swiss. Irrelevant of who opened fire, someone opened fire, and it was the Swiss who unleashed a devastating volley into the assailants' ranks as a result. The Federates and their allies had to fall back, but the insurgents were now fueled by a sense of rage. Like the events that transpired when the Bastille fell, the assailants perceived that they had been lured into a trap. By throwing cartridges from the windows, it was assumed that the Patriots had been deliberately misled by the Swiss. Betrayed by the deceitful foreigners, the crowd would refuse to show mercy in the coming struggle. Having fallen back to safe positions, 
the insurgents regrouped and renewed the assault. Now, reinforced by more Sankulot volunteers, and bringing to bear the cannon they had acquired from those guards that had defected or deserted. The Swiss had no choice but to fall back, but their discipline and well-fortified positions meant that they extracted a heavy toll on the assailants. It was now, in the midst of battle, that orders arrived from the king. Able to hear the battle from the safety of the assembly, and seeking to avoid further and unnecessary bloodshed, Louis ordered the Swiss to stand down and surrender. They did as they were ordered, but they were met with an unrestrained fury. What followed was a massacre. Enraged by the perceived betrayal, the insurgents slaughtered every soldier they could find. They were butchered in the palace, in the gardens, in the streets. They were hunted down and slaughtered wherever they were found. Stabbed, clubbed, and at times violently mutilated, it was a small minority who had the good fortune to successfully escape or hide from their pursuers. In the chaos, some federés from Brest were killed by their own side. Their uniform was similar to that of the Swiss and resulted in a costly mistake. In total, approximately 600 Swiss were killed, along with others deemed loyal to the new old regime. The Fion Club was sacked and several prominent individuals were put to death. The former deputy, Clément Tonnerre, was among them, as was the prominent royalist journalist, Salou. The latter was beheaded, but at least he didn't share the same fate as those Swiss soldiers who had their genitals hacked away. The massacre of the Swiss guards resulted in the 10th of August being the bloodiest day of the revolution thus far. The Champ de Mars massacre in July 1791 had seen less than a hundred Parisians killed. The number of Swiss soldiers slain was many times that number, let alone the assailants who also perished. There's no sugarcoating this. This was a bloody, violent, at times barbaric day in the history of the revolution. Far from the bloodiest, as we shall see, but a dark day nonetheless. To some historians, the violence witnessed here is an omen of what was to come. Furthermore, it's emblematic of the brutal and ironic inhumanity which would come to characterise the revolution, and in particular, the terror. These historians look upon the 10th of August with disgust, denounce its excesses, and mourn the fact that this was just the start of a new regime, one which would be characterised by such violence. Historian John Boscher sees the 10th of August as an eruption of popular violence, which cannot be excused. The terror was based on the violence of the populace, led mainly by educated leaders who approved of popular violence on ideological grounds. It began on Friday, 10 August 1792, from which day, sudden death, or the threat of it, came from these two groups in slightly different forms, but leading to the same political result. After the collapse of the defenders at the Tuileries on 10 August, the populace murdered several hundred men in the Swiss Guards, the Palace Domestic Service, and the groups of loyal gentlemen, 
those Fillons and other political moderates who did not hide, as did Pierre-Louis Roderer, Dupont de Nemours, and hundreds of others, were murdered along with the rest, their bodies plundered, stripped, mutilated, and their heads hacked off and paraded about on pikes. One brief spell of vengeance in the heat of battle? Not at all. This event was a characteristic expression of popular violence, foreshadowed by much scattered killing earlier, and soon to be followed by even bigger massacres. Historian John Boscher is joined by other historians, who see the 10th of August as emblematic of the unrestrained popular violence, which was to become a hallmark of the French Revolution. The famously conservative 19th century historian Hippolyte Taine also focused on the brutal treatment of the Swiss and denounced the actions of the 10th as an example of primitive war and the actions of barbarians. I think Taine's account helps to paint a detailed portrait of the fall of the Tuileries Palace, so I've included more than just his opinion on the day's events. The others are annihilated on crossing the garden, or cut down on the place Louis XV by the mounted gendarmerie. No quarter is given. The warfare is that of a mob. Not civilised war, but primitive war, that of barbarians. In the abandoned palace, into which the insurgents enter five minutes after the departure of the garrison, they kill the wounded, the two Swiss surgeons attending to them, the Swiss who had not fired a gun, and who, in the balcony on the side of the garden, cast off their cartridge boxes, sabres, coats and hats, and shout, Friends, we are with you. We are Frenchmen. We belong to the nation. They kill the Swiss, armed or unarmed, who remain at their posts in the apartments. They kill the Swiss gatekeepers in their boxes. They kill everybody in the kitchens, from the head cook down to the pot boys. The women barely escape. Madame Campa, on her knees, seized by the back, sees an uplifted sabre about to fall on her, when a voice from the foot of the staircase calls out, What are you doing there? The women are not to be killed. Get up, you hussy. The nation forgives you. To make up for this, the nation helps itself and indulges itself to its heart's content in the palace which now belongs to it. Some honest persons do, indeed, carry money and valuables to the National Assembly, but others pillage and destroy all they can. Finding accounts which emphasise the barbaric treatment of the Swiss is relatively easy. Historians from different eras are keen to emphasise the excesses and extremes of the revolution while others seek to portray the bloodshed as a harbinger for what was to come. But before we turn our attention to how some left-wing historians and contemporaries viewed the events, I do want to unpack an interesting perspective from historian Simon Sharma. Sharma goes much further than others when he writes that he believes that violence was not a byproduct of the revolution, as some suggest, but instead the source of its energy and power. As a result, the massacre of the Swiss was not an unfortunate occurrence, but rather the revolution's logical consummation. 
Sharma states that the revolution had always been underpinned by violence, either actual or the threat of it. Since 1788, uprisings, revolts, civil unrest and extrajudicial killings had all been used as a means to gain political power. It was this violence which had originally empowered the revolutionaries against the crown, and now a new generation of revolutionaries were using it against the constitutional authorities. Given the prominence of violence since 1788, given the calls for violence in the revolutionary and royalist press, given the accolades showered upon revolutionary martyrs and the demands for war against enemies both abroad and at home, Sharma argues that it should come as no surprise that eventually the revolution came to embody and enlarge the very thing which gave it its power. The 10th of August was therefore a natural escalation of the violent energy which had powered the revolution since the beginning, and it would not be the last. According to Sharma, this acceleration in violence continued until means became an end, and popular violence became a defining characteristic of the French Revolution. Not necessarily a perspective I completely agree with, but an interesting and thought-provoking perspective nonetheless. So, there's no shortage of voices who are ready and waiting to denounce the events of the 10th. Yet, not all historians are so eager to denounce the bloodshed and the treatment of the Swiss and other royalist sympathisers. While some conservative and revisionist historians emphasise the massacre of the Swiss in their accounts of the day, other historians, particularly those on the left side of the political spectrum, tend to de-emphasise the violence. Historian George Lefebvre, often considered to be a historian belonging to the Marxist school of historiography, barely mentions the massacre. In his book, The French Revolution, he literally states, They received no quarter from their opponents. Many were massacred. That's it. No mention of the mutilation, of the hundreds of corpses, of the butchering of non-combatants. None at all. Likewise, anarchist historian Peter Kropotkin is also brief. He states that under the furious assault of the people, the Swiss were either disarmed or massacred. Again, that's it. Although Kropotkin does at least implicitly defend the actions of the people, emphasising instead the fact that the Swiss had needlessly assaulted the heroes who overthrew the monarchy. On the evening of August 10, and the following day, the popular fury was turned chiefly on the Swiss. Had not some of the Swiss thrown their cartridges out of the windows, thereby inviting the crowd to enter the palace? Were not the people trying to fraternise with the Swiss, who were posted on the great staircase at the entrance, when, at close quarters, they opened a steady and murderous fire on the crowd? Kropotkin's emphasis on the wrongdoings of the Swiss reflects a genuine perception held amongst many Parisians on the 10th of August. While historian Boscher rejects the idea that this bloodshed was a brief spell of vengeance in the heat of battle, 
Kropotkin does his utmost to implicitly justify the actions of the crowd, noting the murderous actions of the Swiss and the corrupt, abusive regime that they were seeking to protect. Now, this quite divergent approach to the revolution's violence is something we're going to be seeing a lot more of. Each event, each massacre, each uprising, each revolt, each killing will have its own unique circumstances and therefore will result in each having a variety of unique perspectives. But going forward, we're going to continue to see some historians emphasising the violence of the revolution as well as see other historians either de-emphasise that violence or potentially seek to rationalise or defend it. This results in a lot of divergent and quite complex perspectives and we're going to be exploring them as we continue with the podcast. That is, of course, the very spirit of grey history. In saying that, it is hard to find too many voices willing to explicitly defend the treatment of the Swiss on the 10th of August, at least amongst historians. Amongst contemporaries, however, and one doesn't have to look any further than everyone's favourite radical journalist, Marat. Marat, who of course was missing in action for much of the tenth, managed to publish a placard that very day. The piece supported the actions of the Parisians and defended their behaviour. In this document, Marat justified the actions of the crowd and even encouraged them to go further. Considering that the journalist had long been calling for mass executions of the revolution's enemies, this shouldn't be surprising. But importantly, we're now entering a stage of the revolution where Marat's radical proposals have a very good chance of actually becoming policy. Thus, what was once considered a crazy suggestion back in 1789 now needs to be treated with much more respect, because by 1792, Marat is going to be in a position to actually implement his ideas. This is what Marat wrote on the 10th of August. The glorious day of the 10th of August, 1792, may be decisive of the triumph of liberty, if you do but know how to profit by your advantage. A great number of the despot's satellites have eaten the dust. Your implacable enemies are in consternation but they will not be slow to return and reassert themselves in a more terrible form than before. After having shed your blood to drag the country from the abyss, tremble lest you become the victims of their secret plots. Dread the reaction. I repeat, your enemies will not spare you when their chance comes. Therefore, no quarter. You are lost without recovery if you do not hasten to strike down the corrupt members of the municipality, of the department, all the anti-patriot judges, and the most putrid deputies of the National Assembly. Declaring the day's events as a triumph of liberty and celebrating the fact that the king's men had eaten dust, Marat urged no quarter be given for those enemies who remain. This included not only the soldiers, such as the Swiss, but any official, priest or civilian who remained opposed to the revolution. 
as we shall see, no quarter will be offered. Before we wrap up this episode, I would like to make a point that not all insurrectionists or supporters of a second revolution shared Marat's lust for blood, nor supported the treatment of the Swiss. For all the talk amongst some conservative and revisionist historians of how popular violence was encouraged by the revolutionary leadership, there were leading insurrectionists who did their bit to help minimise that violence. For example, the popular journalist Camille Desmolins, a leading figure of the Cordelier Club and a close associate of Danton, was no stranger to conflict. We first met Desmolins as he rallied a Parisian crowd in the days before the fall of the Bastille, and he had been active on the streets of Paris throughout the 10th of August as well. Despite being a committed Republican, a devout revolutionary, and a leading organiser of the insurrection, Demelard had actually offered safe shelter to some enemies of the people. This included the royalist journalist Salou, the one that we heard about earlier, who was beheaded by a mob. Likewise, Brousseau and other Jacobins helped to shelter escaping Swiss soldiers in the safety of the Legislative Assembly. Some historians also claim that Danton helped to save some Swiss soldiers as well. Thus, prominent figures of the revolutionary left responded to the day's events in very different ways. While some championed the insurrection, others played no role at all. While some applauded the treatment of the Swiss and prominent royalists, others sought to save them from a gruesome demise. These divergent actions not only reinforced the need to take the time to unpack the revolution's events in detail, but also highlights the division which existed amongst the revolutionaries who would now come to prominence. This not only included division between the Girondins and the Montagnards, but within those factions as well. As we shall see, the victors and beneficiaries of the 10th of August agreed that the government needed to be replaced. But that was about all they could agree upon. Division and despair lay ahead for the leaders of the Second Revolution. Thank you for listening to episode 36, The Insurrection of 10 August 1792. Next episode, we'll explore the aftermath of the fall of the monarchy its immediate consequences, the reaction outside of Paris, and the fate of some of the winners and losers. And there is multiple winners and multiple losers. The episode extra awaiting for you right now if you're a Patreon supporter of the show explores the possibility of a successful defence of the palace, as well as Napoleon's thoughts on the 10th of August. Remember, please share the show with anyone who you think might be interested in a great history podcast that actually explores the ambiguities of the past. And please sponsor the show on Patreon if you enjoy grey history and would like grey history not only just to finish the French Revolution, but to then move on to other contentious and amazing events. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.